0: Happened to him. It feels like we are powerless. Now, of course, it has always been hard to be Christians, and uh, at some times and in some places, it's been considerably harder than it is now in Britain. But it would be very foolish for us to underestimate how difficult it is today. We're not being persecuted, or at least in any major way. Um, The challenges to Christian faith, it seems to me, today come not so much from outright aggressive opposition, but more significantly from the culture that we live in. It is quietly becoming more and more toxic for Christians. In many workplaces at the moment it's increasingly difficult to be a Christian. A couple of decades ago the real problem area for Christians was... um, over abortions for doctors and nurses, but today it's common to hear of a Christian JP in the family courts or a Christian registrar or a marriage counsellor or a member of an adoption panel or even a social worker getting forced out of their job because of their Christian convictions. Actually, the, the main challenge for Christians is not even that. It's not, not, not those specific things. It, the main challenge is that the underlying assumptions of our culture are askew. Once there was general cultural support, for instance, for marriage and sexual continence, or at least and that now today, at least in the cities, there's almost none, we have the morality of friends and scrubs in today's world. We've become quietly more and more obsessed with money and therefore more and more are ruled by work. And it's almost impossible for a Christian to stand aside from those things as house prices go up, as as the average working week uh, um, uh, tends to increase. Because to stand aside is to invite yourself to be the first person to be made redundant. Christianity is... Leeching away from our society. Today it's con- treated with contempt and derision and amusement and bewilderment as well as sometimes hostility. And that is exactly the environment where true Christianity can thrive. That's what I want you to know. That's exactly the environment where true Christianity can thrive. Christianity was born into that environment. It does feel disconcerting for old fogies and young fogies um, who long for the past. It, of course, gets railed against with a mixture of nostalgia and sometimes whinging self-pity by people like me um, in pulpits. And it is bad what is happening to our society. But the whole New Testament is designed to create believers in exactly the environment that we find ourselves in. It is designed for such a time as this. Some people keep aquarium fish. They're absolutely beautiful, most of them. Um, But uh, um, most of them need incredible care to keep them healthy. They need perfectly clean water. They need the right temperature for the water. They need the right nutrients, the right levels of oxygen. And uh, to be honest, an awful lot of Christians are like those aquarium fish. They are beautiful, but they demand exactly the right environment. And we keep gold a goldfish. Goldfish are different. There, there, there are times, I have to say, when um, uh, Bingo the goldfish... Swims to the back of his tank. He disappears in the gloom of the algae. But he's alive and very well. Frankly, you can keep your shoebunkins and your clever little uh, seahorses and so on because we'd kill (laughs) them. But goldfish are beautiful as well as rugged. God wants to create Christians like that. That's a major agenda for Matthew when he wrote his Gospel. Matthew was a Jewish Christian and he lived at a time when, to be honest, the whole fabric of his society seemed to be uh, falling apart. It was a a time um, in the 60s AD almost certainly when there were increasing tensions between the Jewish nation and Rome and it wouldn't be long before it would all blow up in war and destruction. Well, when he for his life, had become increasingly uncomfortable. He had been converted 30 years uh, uh, earlier and he was a Jew. He became a Jewish Christian and initially functioned within the Jewish nation. But as the years had gone by, his own people had become more and more and more hostile to him. So as well as the whole of wider society feeling like it fell apart, he was feeling, alongside his uh, fellow Jewish Christians, increasingly marginalised and treated as an irrelevance as everybody focused on the big political issues of the day. Not that unfamiliar, is it? And of course, his fellow Christians questioned their faith. Why were they becoming so irrelevant in society? Wasn't Jesus the King of Kings? Shouldn't 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 in fact the story of their life be one of victory after victory? Why were the historic people of God, the Jews, by and large turning away from this Jesus? Matthew sets out to explain. He explains centrally that Jesus actually is the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Old Testament. He sets out in his Gospel to show that everything that happened to Jesus was anticipated before. He explains crucially that the Bible always expected many people to reject Jesus. It is no surprise. More than that, the Bible always expected Jesus actually to win his battles in a surprising way. There's a central section in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 11 and 12, which are crucially important to Matthew's message about Jesus because there Matthew starts to interact with um, the reality that people got confused about whether Jesus really was the Messiah, people, um, uh, people turned to reject him completely. And, and right at the centre of that central section, Matthew quotes from the book of Isaiah in Matthew 12, verse 17. This was to fulfil, he says, all that's happening, was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, he will proclaim justice to the nations, he will not quarrel or cry out, no one will hear his voice in the streets, a bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he leads justice to victory, in his name the nations will put their hope. Two crucial things that Matthew wants to get into our minds as he quotes that that passage in Isaiah about a mysterious servant who would one day come, who Matthew says is Jesus. The two things. One is, he will be gentle and quiet in his ministry. He won't... Break bruised reeds. He won't snuff out smouldering wicks. He won't, therefore, be at the top of the news at ten o'clock. But he will be successful. In his name, the nations will put their hope. And that is what happened his quietness his gentleness his apparent weakness actually led him to an apparent defeat at the cross but god's determination to give him victory raised him from the dead so that in the end he stood as the risen lord jesus and said all authority in heaven on earth uh, on heaven and earth is given to me and that is how he continues to work quietly, but winning his victory. That, that, that is vitally important for us to understand as we come now to uh, over the next number of weeks to uh, study Matthew 8 and 9. Because when you, when you come to Matthew chapters 8 and 9, there is, there is one thing that hits you between the eyes. Again and again in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we are seeing Jesus' authority displayed. In fact, um, uh, when you examine where these stories occur in the other Gospels, it becomes clear that Matthew has collected these stories from a number of different moments in Jesus' life, welded them together as a collection, as a separate collection of stories precisely to put together that clear picture of the authority of Jesus. And it would be very easy for someone in Matthew's day and someone today to read them and say, yeah, that was Jesus then, perhaps, but what about now? And uh, what Matthew says in the whole of his Gospel is that was Jesus then, unmasked, uncloaked for a moment, displaying his full authority. But he still has that authority now. Any superficial glance at the history of Christianity cannot help but see that Christianity, the followers of Jesus, have been the most significant force in the whole of history. It's not difficult to see that Matthew is telling the truth. But also, he expects people in little churches, in quietly hostile cultures, to be thinking, well, really? His answer is absolutely. Okay, so. Uh, we are at Matthew chapter 8 and 9. I want just uh, briefly to uh, anticipate the series by just showing you the structure of Matthew 8 and 9 and our sermons will follow this. It's three collections of three miracles. This, this is schematically organised. This is Matthew uh, gathering things together as, uh, as I... Um, Uh, already said. And between those is each time there is a section of teaching on discipleship. Jesus, discipleship, Jesus, discipleship. And every set of three miracles is about his authority and another dimension of that. So that's where we're going to go. We've got six sermons on Matthew 8 and 9 and I'm going to introduce you to the first section really rather um, briefly today. Here... Matthew describes a whole series of what, uh, the only way that I can, I can find to describe it is, is unstoppable reversals. Let me explain to you what I mean. It all begins in the first four verses of chapter 8. There you find unstoppable cleansing. A man with leprosy appears. Jesus comes down from the mountain. He's been teaching with authority in Matthew 5-7. to Large crowds follow him. A man from, with leprosy came and knelt before him. That, that word leprosy could be used to describe actually various skin ailments. but It doesn't particularly matter what skin ailment it was. The spiritual significance of it was absolutely vital. In Israel, if you had a skin disease, you were rejected by society. You were separated from society. You were separated, crucially, from God. And everything about your life had to display that. For instance, in Leviticus chapter 13, we read, The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes and let his hair be unkempt cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as he has this disease, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. That was what you were, you were subjected to if you had those skin, skin diseases. Perhaps the nearest we can get to it now is, is imagining a paedophile In our minds. Or perhaps saying you know, um, Jamie Bulger's murderer, John Venables. Okay? A person utterly treated with revulsion and rejection by society. Matthew signals something is going to happen. It's uh, lost in the NIV but in verse 2 the King James picks it up. Matthew says, and behold a man with leprosy came. key, something's going to happen which is unusual. This man, first of all, approaches Jesus. That is absolutely forbidden. But he's got it into his head, he's going to do this. There is an ambiguity about the way that he approaches him. When it says um, he knelt before him, in verse 2, you could translate it, he worshipped him. When he addresses Jesus as Lord, you could translate that as just, you could think of it as just Sir, but of course later for Christians that became the title for Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son. Matthew's hinting that perhaps this man has started to see something of who Jesus is. Certainly, he recognises Jesus' unique authority. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, people did get clean in Israel sometimes. They did get cured of their leprosy. But it was really clear who did it. The Lord. But he doesn't say, if the Lord is willing. He says, if you are willing, Jesus not god you now this man this this man is doing something outrageous he is saying something outrageous and he ought to be condemned for it the issue of this story is really clear matthew uses the word clean three times. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus said, be cleaned in, uh, or, or cleansed in um, uh, verse 3 and then in uh, uh, verse 3 as well, the word translated cured should be better cleansed. The point is not so much that, that, that this is about the healing of this man physically. It's about the reverse, reversal of his status of being unacceptable. Now, actually I think we know about this in our culture. We don't don't display that sense of unacceptableness in the way that lepers were forced to. But again and again and again in modern culture, you find in pop songs and in books and so on, people confessing that they are wearing a mask and they feel awful inside. Sometimes that's addressed with incredible bravado, um, where people say, "You know, I'm 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 rubbish." That's a popular word, isn't it? I'm rubbish. Often it's just hidden. Sometimes it just bubbles out. Who, who can forget the sad pictures of Britney Spears shaving her head for whatever reason? There is a recognition here in our culture. An awful lot of people feel actually behind the mask they're dirty, And this man reverses all expectations. Going to Jesus when he should have steered clear of him. Saying, if you are willing, when he should have piously said, if God is willing. And Jesus does an even more amazing reversal. You see, like leprosy is catching, actually uncleanness was catching. If you touch a person in Jewish society who was unclean, you become unclean. Very easy to understand. Imagine someone covered in oil. They've got oily, dirty hands, and they put out their hand to shake your hand. You have to overcome your revulsion, and certainly if you do shake them by the hand, you get dirty. Imagine the oily person puts out his hand, someone shakes it, and he becomes clean. But that's what happens here. The touch of Jesus reverses, miraculously, the uncleanness of this man. Is that happening today? Well, yes it is. No, of course Jesus is not walking the earth. Now of course there aren't these sorts of miracles. But what he pointed to is happening today. People who feel that dirtiness inside are finding that when they come to Jesus, they catch his cleanness. And they are therefore welcomed into the presence of God. Jesus has the authority to do that. If you are sitting here thinking, I am not worthy to come close to this God. And you need to meet that Jesus. Because he sees everything that is in your heart and he He is willing to cleanse it, to forgive it, as we'll see in a minute, to make you clean. Yes, there may be continuing embarrassing sins in your life, but they do not need to have a hold over you, because Jesus has seen them and forgiven them. He has reversed what should have happened. Shame tends to spread like a contagion and sin alongside it. And he's touched a man and eliminated it. He is unstoppable in the next story in a, in in a different way. Here there is unstoppable inclusion. A centurion comes to Jesus. Centurions were outsiders, but but in a quite different way from this leper. They were insiders in one sense. Racially, they were the superior superior people. Their status. Um, The status of a centurion was really high, they wielded all the power of Rome. But they were outsiders because they didn't do God. Especially they didn't do the Jewish God, centurions. This uh, centurion approaches Jesus. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralysed and in terrible suffering. And Jesus' reply is interesting because it's probably not what the NIV, how the NIV translates it, I will go and heal him. It's probably, it reads much more like a question. It's probably much more like this. You want me to go and heal him? You're a centurion and you want this itinerant Jewish peasant to go and heal your servant? The centurions despised the Jews and their faith it was a nasty squalid little faith as far as they were concerned hopelessly parochial after all they only worshiped one god centurions worshiped lots of them so christians were even accused of called atheists by the romans cuz frankly to worship one god was as good as worshipping none they were lazy said the romans they r- rested on the sabbath they were hopelessly backward morally insisting on sex only um, in heterosexual marriage. Indeed, they said they were dangerously lawless, since they said that their um, law was higher than the Roman law. And of course, they were pathetically low status. But this proud centurion approaches it, and frankly, it's like, one of, it's like having one of Richard Dawkins' Um, uh, disciples walk into the church. It's like a, having a Muslim imam come and want to find out a, about Jesus and study the Bible. It's like a local politician knocking on my door and saying, actually, I don't want your vote. I want you to find out about Jesus. It just doesn't happen. You want me, says Jesus? And then the centurion says, Something amazing. I don't deserve to come uh, for you to come under my roof, he says in verse 8, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And um, uh, this is clearly so um, uh, astonishing to Jesus, that it's the only place we find that he was amazed in verse 10, or astonished. Because you see, this centurion has gone a step further in his faith than most of the people who met Jesus. Most of the people who met Jesus came up to him and uh, said, effectively say, I need your touch, Jesus. That's what the leper had done. The centurion says, I just need you to say the word, Jesus. And it will happen. And that is a step closer to real, true Christian faith. We cannot enjoy the touch of Jesus. We simply need to know the proclamation of Jesus. That he is faithful and just and forgives all of our sins. And somehow the centurion's got it. Just say the word. Of course, he's a Gentile. Here here is true faith being expressed outside of the normal people of God. And notice what Jesus says. He picks up on that. I say to you, verse 11, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing and teeth. All kinds of people from all places will come and join the historic people of God. And, says Jesus, be clear, many of those who by rights or by natural descent ought to be there will be thrown out you don't come to jesus simply because you inherit it and notice the defining issue the defining issue is faith in jesus that is who are the people of god and this this surprise this this second re- reversal if you want to put it that way, is still happening today. People who you would not expect coming to faith in Jesus. I, I, I won't ask you to, um, uh, to, to uh, uh, raise your hands, but you will find a significant proportion of people here are not second generation evangelical Christians. One reason or another, they have come to Jesus despite their family background, just like this centurion. In Oxford, um, people are amazed that students in their hundreds flock to churches. What, intelligent young men and women? Going to church? Here we always have a trickle of people from completely outside, the privilege of talking to an imam who wants to, to uh, understand what the Bible says. Christianity actually always renews itself from outside. It's always done that. No. Perhaps. The historic people of God do always fade away as generation follows generation, but in every generation there is this renewal that happens and it is happening here. Because Jesus is unstoppable. We've already anticipated it but let me point out where these three miracles go. From amazing miracles, Matthew becomes much more mundane, just healing of of, um, uh, Peter's mother-in-law and then general healings of uh, other people in verses 14 to 16. But then Matthew sort of drops his final piece into his jigsaw of this section. This was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. This is from Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53, very importantly, unites two things. It speaks of this mysterious servant who we've already seen this morning. But it speaks of him as if he takes our diseases from us onto himself. And then in Isaiah 53, it makes it plain that that is only part of the story. Because crucially, he takes our punishment from our shoulders onto himself. The very next verse in Isaiah 53, for instance says, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. All these healing miracles are just pictures of the fundamental thing that God is doing, that Jesus is doing. Jesus is taking the punishment for our sins on his shoulders and therefore setting us free. That's why we can be clean despite the fact that we are sinners. He touches the leper and cleanness is transmitted because he died on the cross. For our sins. That's why all sorts of outsiders can come and join with the people of God, despite the fact that they were they were not brought up in that way. Because now it is simply faith in Jesus Christ and His death on the cross that unites God's people. That was always God's intention, says Matthew. You 1st century believers who are feeling marginalised, you belong to an unstoppable Jesus. You Christians in the 20th century, 21st century in Britain, you belong to an unstoppable Jesus. He is doing that still, what you see in these verses. Walk around here, talk to people, you will find he is doing that. Up and down this country, he is doing that. In this world, he is doing that. And it will always feel like the Christians are a powerless little individual against the tanks. And the powerless Jesus will always win. He has in every generation, he will in our generation. So, will you join him? Will you accept that contagious cleanness? Will you come? and express the centurion's faith.